Welcome to Practice Perspectives Keen Insights, where radiology meets heart. I am your host, Diane Keen, and together we'll explore the world of radiology. Join us as we engage in insightful conversations with expert leaders throughout our field, offering honest and open discussions that will resonate across the industry. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the second edition of Practice Perspectives Keen Insights. I'm excited today because I am joined with a good friend of mine and a well-known healthcare attorney in our industry, Adrian Dresovich. Adrian, thank you for being here. Adrian is the founding partner of the health law firm, and I've known Adrian for, gosh, Adrian, how long? Eight and probably ten years. Ten years. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for having me. By the way. Of course, of course. You're. Um, I'm I'm really honored that you're taking the time to do this, not only for me, but for our whole industry. Tell me what led you to want to volunteer and do do the things you do within our industry to just share that expertise. Yeah. So so thank you. So yeah. So I started um getting really involved with radiology issues probably about maybe 15 years ago. And um a little bit about my practice. So I'm a healthcare attorney and I do represent all kinds of different physicians and hospitals and other kind of healthcare providers. But I do spend a significant amount of my time dealing with radiology issues, whether it's radiology practices, IDTFs or other, you know, hospitals, health systems and there's a lot of nuances with radiology that are different, I think, than other areas of healthcare law and how radiology is treated um, with respect to some of the laws. And I started to do a lot of work in that area and got invited, I think, to speak at AHRA and RBMA. Um, and I always love speaking. I always think it's fun to get in front of the audience and kind of tell the story of issues that I think are important that providers need to know and, and kind of get a handle on because there's a lot of rules and regulations um, that apply and it can get very overwhelming. But I always like to get in front of an audience to try to break it down simply <laughs> to understanding like what, what did they need to know when you're practicing? You don't need to have all this lawyer speak, but you need to really there's certain concepts that you need to be aware of that kind of red flag and trigger so that you can make sure that you stay out of trouble. And so that's how I got involved with it and started doing that and speaking at a lot of different conferences over the years and got to meet people like you, Diane, um, by asking a lot of questions, which I always love during presentations when we get hypo so-called hypotheticals or, you know, of what's going on in the industry. I learned something every time I speak to of kind of new arrangements, new things that are happening out there. So it's been a pleasure to do it, and, and I'm excited every time. Love to do it. Well, we we always, we meaning me and just the industry as a whole, have always appreciated it. Um, for those of you who don't know, I come from a 20-year history of radiology private practice from marketing, business development, operations, recruiting, you name it. I've probably worn that hat. But within my role in marketing and in the role I've, I've been able to have and help coach and mentor other marketing teams, you know, the conversation about Stark is one of the first things I always bring up. So I'm glad we're going to dig into this a little bit more. But first, a couple questions for you, just so we can continue to get to know you a little bit better. Don't be scared. They're not, they're not bad. This or that. Um, mountain climb or skydive? Definitely mountain climb. I would never want to um, jump out of a plane. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Um, salty or sweet? 
Oh gosh. I think, oh my gosh, that's super hard, but probably sweet because I do tend to at night always want to reach for M&Ms. That's like one of my favorites. So I'd say sweet. Yeah. Plain or what? Almond, peanut? Uh, plain or peanut butter. Oh. Peanut oh. butter, M&Ms are my absolute favorite. But any, actually any kind of M&Ms except for caramel. I, I hate caramel, um, but everything else. <laughs> Um, one more question. Binge watch or binge read? So that's a good one too, but probably lately, um, I would say binge watch. I do a lot of reading, um, for my profession. <laughs> so sometimes at night, I just like to come home or if I'm at a play and just kind of binge watch. But what I've been watching lately and I've gotten really into, um, is Yellowstone. It's, you don't watch that. My husband watched some of it and I know so many people love it. So I've been hearing for like so many people came up to me all the time saying, you have to watch Yellowstone. You have to watch Yellowstone. I thought, I don't know. Does it like really appeal to me? And then I was um, actually going to a healthcare conference um, to Jackson Hole, Wyoming. And on the plane, I'm like, you know, like I want to see, we're going to actually Yellowstone. So I want to actually see, see, see this show. And I got hooked the first, the first season and I watched all the seasons. Now I'm waiting for the new ones to come out. So maybe yeah. I'll have to catch up with that. Yeah. So, okay, let's talk about Star. First of all, I think our audience here is going to be very broad. I'm okay. sure you're going to have marketing professionals in this, um, watching and listening to this. We will have operators, physicians, and another big growing audience and a, and a big, um, I guess, joy of mine within the industry and an industry that's growing are the office-based labs, the OBL in interventional radiology. So, a lot of my friends, a lot of my contacts, and probably a good many of our listeners will be interventional radiologists who are now going from a, either an academic or a, a IRDR private practice setting, maybe where other people took care of the logistics into running their own business where things like Stark are going to be extremely crucial to to being in compliance and doing business the right way. So let's talk about this. First of all, so the so the beginner understands yeah. what Stark is, but then also understanding that we're going to have a just a, a wide variety of listeners from throughout the radiology industry. So, okay, first, sure. What is Stark? So the Stark law, and when we say Stark, we're usually referring to the federal Stark law. So that's the, the first issue. So the federal Stark law basically says that a physician cannot refer to an entity with which that physician or the physician's immediate family member has a financial relationship unless an exception applies. Um, and it applies to, and that's a lot. Uh, so I'll break it down for a minute because um, each word could, we could talk about each definition for many hours, but I will, I'll, I'll spare everyone. But what it really says is it looks to physicians when they're referring what are called designated health services, which includes radiology and other imaging services. So anytime you're dealing with billing Medicare um, or billing Medicaid and you're dealing with uh, radiology services, you're most likely going to encounter the start law and have to be aware of it to some extent. And um, the last part is uh, what I said, unless an exception applies, is pretty important because oftentimes common arrangements in healthcare. for example, a physician, maybe an orthopedic surgeon refers um you know, for an MRI to a to a local independent imaging center, um, if that physician has some type of financial relationship, maybe there's a lease arrangement, or maybe there's a rental arrangement, 
Maybe there's some kind of consulting arrangement that physician has with that imaging center. That's going to trigger STAR. So, the, then, Adrian, what if that yeah. surgeon is married to the radiologist that yeah, so that imaging center? So that's a hard one. So I think that raises the red flag right away because what I mentioned, Stark, I said the physician or the physician's immediate family member. So the immediate family member really steps into the shoes of the referring physician. So once that is triggered, you have to be very, very careful because oftentimes there may not be an exception that kind of can protect those relationships. Um, We've seen that a lot where you have a radiology group has some kind of exclusive contract with the local hospital. And one of the owners of the radiology group is married to, um, you know, uh, uh, their their spouse becomes the physician in the community and works at the hospital. So those that be, quite often. Yeah, that that happens quite often, and people don't understand that can trigger some issues with Stark depending upon how the relationship is structured. And so that is something that if that occurs in the practice. Um, it should just raise a red flag for that to be looked at really carefully by a healthcare attorney. Because it doesn't necessarily rule out that you can no. get those referrals. You just have to. Right. You have to make sure that there's an assault your own healthcare attorney. Yes. 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 Sometimes there are situations where you potentially could create an issue where there can't be referrals, but usually there's some kind of exception or something that can be done. So it just needs to be looked at pretty carefully. So here's another scenario. Maybe the radiologist or or the imaging center group or interventional radiologist decides to build a center and maybe they buy the building or build a bigger building and they have office space to lease. Mm -hmm. And say an oncologist moves in who might be a referrer. Mm -hmm. So there's the the lease or the tenant and the landlord, if you will. Yeah. How, how would that factor into this conversation? So that's, that's really common, actually. So what would happen there is you have a radiology practice, let's say some type of practice, and they're leasing space to a referral, referring physician. That triggers the Stark law. But luckily, there's an exception in Stark. So Stark recognizes that, you know, this is a pretty common uh, relationship. And there's an exception that applies to lease arrangements. So you can have rental of office space, rental of equipment. And the start exceptions can get pretty detailed. But for the, what I always tell um, folks that are in the, in the industry is there's some common themes with the exceptions. And think about this. like You should always be paying fair market value for the item or service. So fair market value for the rent. The rent can't be based upon the volume or value of referrals. It should be a flat rental payment that's commercially reasonable. Just as if the parties were didn't have any referral relationship at all. And you have to have a written agreement in place. And there's a lot of other real uh, details and the exceptions. But I think if you stick to those kind of tenants, you will be okay. Those are very common arrangements. But you have to make sure that you're paying fair market value and there's not an adjustment in rent to make up for their referral relationship. But that's really what the government's looking for, for purposes of Stark. You also have kickback issues too. Um, But if your lease meets the Stark exception, you'll be fine from a kickback perspective as well. Okay, I'm going to throw some scenarios at you. Okay. Just questions, questions I've been asked. I did ask some of my colleagues in the industry if they had questions for you. And then also just based on my experience working with other teams. And I'm going to throw something out there and you tell me, good, bad, holy moly, don't ever do that. Or I'm glad <laughs> yes. it's just a hypothetical scenario because it could never really happen. So, okay. Um, 
let's let's kind of put on our marketing hats. Okay. And you've got liaisons in the field working to grow business for your imaging center. Often we're taking lunch. Often we have, uh, you know, we're, uh, sticky notes and pens or little gadgets that we give away. Or perhaps it's tickets to a golf or a, a place in a golf tournament. Mm-hmm. How careful do our marketing reps in the field need to be and the operators and the leadership of these centers? How, of course, they should be watching this and watching those dollars. What, what do we do? What is the right thing? And how do you monitor that in terms of staying in line with Stark? I know there's a um, dollar amount per physician mm-hmm. each year. I think this year, am I correct that it's $489 or 89 this year? Correct. Correct. So let's talk about that. How do our marketing professionals in radiology stay safe and how do our imaging center owners and leadership stay safe? Yeah, so a great question. This happens all the time, as you know, from the conferences that we've attended. There's always a lot of questions about, hey, our marketers are want to do this raffle or want to give these giveaways. So the first thing to know is that, yes, Stark is triggered by even giving out like minimal value items or services. And so people will say, well, why is Stark triggered by, you know, maybe giving some promotional pens or giving or bringing lunch to the, you know, referring physician's office and trying to educate, right, the referring physician about the services that maybe the imaging center provides. And it's because Stark considers like anything of value to be remuneration, a financial relationship. And so even a lunch is considered giving something to that, potentially to that referring physician. But the Stark law recognizes that, you know, there's a certain threshold amount that, hey, you know what, if you don't go over a certain limit, that that can be protected. But the problem Stark is that it's strict liability. And so you have to, from, from an operations perspective, it's really important to track what you're doing and what you're giving out to refer, referral sources. So if you're going to a referring physician's office and the marketing staff wants to bring a lunch to the whole office, what the startup law says is, yes, you can provide some kind of non-monetary compensation. So it can't be cash or cash equivalent, but you could bring lunch, right, for example, to the physician. And um, as long as that dollar amount doesn't exceed this year, it's for, you're correct, $489. Um, that, you know, and as long as it's not related to kind of the referral relationship, you, you'll be okay and you can meet an exception. And so some of the questions that we always get with respect to this type of kind of a marketing plan or marketing arrangement is how do we calculate the value that's going to the physician? And so I always say, you know, look at what you're giving to the actual physician and not the physician's staff. So if you're bringing lunch to the whole staff, for example, unless that physician provides lunch to his or her staff as part of their benefits, you're not really giving the physician any value by giving the whole staff lunch, but you need to take into consideration the value that you give to that physician. So if it's a $20 meal, then you need to track that, that $20, potentially $20 was provided to that physician, and that needs to be tracked. There's compliance um, vendors out there that do this tracking um, for hospitals, health systems, and managing centers, and you need to make sure you don't go over that limit. Now, luckily, there is... Um, there is a provision that says, hey, if you go over that limit, um, as long as it's not more than, I think, 50% of the excess. So let's say we went over by like we $515. We can correct that. Um, but the way to correct that, which is silly, is that you have to get the physician to pay back that amount. 
Um, and that's really hard to do obviously, when you're dealing with referring physicians and they don't always understand it because they've been wined and dined by industry for a long time. Yeah. One of the things that distinguishes radiology is sometimes what happens is they will, you know, they were doing this in the pharmaceutical industry for years and we never heard of this dollar amount. And the, the difference is the Stark law is applicable to the radiology services. So the Stark law is what has that $480 limit. Um, and the pharmaceutical industry subjects the kickback statute, which looks at more facts and circumstances and like, why are we providing this? And is it nominal value? But there isn't the same dollar limit on it. So you do need to be careful. You need to track it. I always say sometimes we play a defense in our, um, in our you know, kind of industry where, you know, we sometimes look at things and say, did we really give value to the physician? Um, like if, for example, we find out that something was provided to a physician, we think we went over the limit. We'll go back and look at that and say, was it something that was really provided as a benefit to the physician? Maybe it's something different. So maybe maybe the physician, you know, lost a family member and you sent flowers to that physician. And it's really for condolences. It's not really, it's you're not providing them some kind of benefit. The physician doesn't consider it a benefit. In that right. situation, I'd say you don't have to count the cost of those flowers. Um, different than, you know, providing tickets to a game. And so Stark Law will say, as long as it's under $489, that's fine, but you still have to be careful because there's still the kickback statute out there and there's lots of guidance that's issued by the what's called the Office of Inspector General that they're kind of like the enforcement arm. That's scary. I don't want to have to meet them. Yeah, and the kickback statute's criminal, so it's different. Stark is civil, um, and so you would have potentially civil fines, but the kickback statute could be criminal in nature. So um, even if you, you know, so you have to be careful about I don't love the idea of giving out expensive sports tickets, even if you can meet Stark, because it's something that's kind of frowned upon by the Office of Inspector General. Um, and then, you know, so sometimes we see, you know, parties that are provided or you know, there's all kinds of various issues, raffles that are done. But you really have to be mindful of that dollar amount. And that dollar amount changes every year. So every January, beginning of the new year, there's going to be new dollar amount. And you can look that up on the CMS Stark webpage is going to show you the, what new amount is each year, but it adds up pretty fast. So you got to be careful. Absolutely. Um, yeah. One of the things that I often um, advise marketing teams and, and leadership teams too is to make sure that you have a good CRM in place mm -hmm. to monitor those visits, to track those visits, because a lot of times that, you know, in addition to tracking that we, you know, we saw Dr. Jones and he sent 14 MRIs. You know, we know yes. that we know what business is coming in, but we also can use that same CRM to track. I, I bought them lunch today, or I spent twenty dollars on lunch for Dr. Jones. So yes. I think that also can be helpful to to clients as they um, as as they use their CRMs to use it also for that. But that does bring up another question. This is another. Um, this is a cringe one. I know you'll cringe when I ask you. Yeah. So speaking of referrals. Yes. Um, you know, Dr. Jones's orthopedic practice sends 100 MRIs a week, but Dr. Flat orthopedic practice only sends 15. Yes. Um, but so the holidays are rolling around and I want to give holiday gifts to my referring physicians. But since Dr. Jones, I think it was, sends more patients, I think I'll buy him a nicer gift. Yeah. And drop it's mint. 
Yes. Says, oh, yes. So, and, and somehow everyone's saying, well, you know, you're talking about small dollar amounts, but it still doesn't matter because even though you have that $480 limit and start, it's still part of the exception says that you can't be doing it based on the volume or value of referrals, yeah, right? Really. So if we start, or if we start saying, I always say, you're not required to get every physician everywhere, you know, the same dollar amount. But if you're in a certain area, I would say, then, you know, you probably should have certain all the physicians in that area as part of your kind of holiday, whatever. Uh, right, exactly. Uh, and that's what I, yeah, uh, that's what I'm identifying. Because the same thing as you go back to what is the government going to potentially look to? And then you start to have kickback issues as well. They're like, they're going to start to look at, yeah, they identified, yeah, this guy's a big referrer. And now all of a sudden there's a big star, you know, next to that physician's name and they get treated differently. And that's, um, that's something that can potentially go to intent as well under the kickback statute. So you got to be careful there. Absolutely. One of the things, and, and this right or wrong, you tell me, but one of the ways that I, I've kind of always structured that when I was in a practice that did holiday gifts was don't base it on number of referrals, but if you have to base it on the number of people who work in that office as to the size of the gift, if it's food, typically it's food or some sort of snacks, that you can justify. Yes. But let's don't ever discuss it, write it down, email it, or even think about doing it based on the number of referrals. Yeah. Another issue that comes up, and I think we've talked about this before at past conferences, is that, you know, sometimes you're dealing with practices that comprise many different physicians. Yeah. And so, yes, you could, if you could have, maybe you have an orthopedic group that's very large and has a hundred physicians in it, you can do that $489 limit applies to each of the physicians in that group. But what you can't do is say, you know what? Why don't I just combine the total amount and give the group practice a really big new present that's thousands and thousands of dollars? That will not meet the start exception and create significant kickbacks and issues. Yeah. Good to know. Yeah. Okay. Another scenario. Mm-hmm. Um, radiologist owns a center. His best friend is the urologist in the practice two, two offices away. And his best friend needs an MRI. And he says, oh, just come on by and we'll, we'll scan you for free. Mm-hmm. What, where does that get into this? Or does so, it? So it's, it's funny you say that because we were just at a conference just talking about um, there are a few cases where the OIG has gone after some health systems for kind of their, their plans with respect to providing um, free services. to. And if it, well, if the, if the friend is a Medicare beneficiary, it does create issues. It creates can create issues, um, you know, um, and one of the things that I, I think in some of the cases where the OIG is focused on is the employees, benefits provided to the employees and the employees' family members. But what in the cases when you really look at those ones, it's like significant, like this was the hospital system, for example, where the hospital system right. was trying to encourage all the employees' family members to come have all their services at that health system. So they were providing pretty significant discounts and benefits to the physician's family members. Um, And so that created a kickback issue and it creates what's called a beneficiary inducement statute issue when you're providing a benefit to a patient that can kind of be treated almost like a kickback issue. And so you have to be careful there. I know that that happens a lot though in the industry. And I'm not saying that if a physician does that to his friend, there's like a one-time issue, it's going to become some huge issue and probably will never be looked at, but it can create exposure if somebody's looking. Do I think the government's going to open an investigation because one, you, you gave your buddy one, you know, a, a free um, service? No, 
Um, But it's just something you have to look at patterns and you have to look at policies within organizations and how that's handled. And is it true that sometimes they they might not be looking to go find that you gave a doctor $495 of lunch or trinkets, but if by chance you're getting investigated or looked at for other reasons, these are great ways to pile onto that, right? So yeah, start looking at everything, and then those fees could become financial. Yeah. Or in the case of anti-kickback, uh, uh, yeah. So it comes in a few different ways, and you sometimes see a splash. And some people will say, "Yeah, you know what? We haven't seen that much really action in this. So why are you making such a big deal about it?" But it comes up in a few ways. Number one is that you do see it oftentimes, and um, with all the private equity. And due diligence that goes on when private equity groups come in and they want to purchase practices or purchase, you know, so they look at everything they do, all this due diligence. And what they do is they're very conservative. And when they see a potential problem, they'll make, they, they want to self-disclose all those issues. So that's where you see a lot of um, nativity. So, you know, you have, in order to make this deal go through, you, we have to self-disclose, we have to pay back all this money. The other way um, it happens, you write through another investigation. It could be oftentimes how STAR generally comes out is usually through a false claims act whistleblower case. And so there's a whistleblower out there. It could be a former employee. It could be a current employee. It could be a competitor. Somebody that has access to information that thinks there's something going wrong within the center. And they they blow the whistle um, saying that, there's maybe an underlying start violation, maybe it's a kickback violation, which is leading to false claims. So every single claim that's submitted that's connected to that bad financial relationship is now what's considered a false claim under the False Claims Act. And so that all piles on. And so even just like a small relationship that we talked about, well, it's technically a relationship that falls outside of Stark. So now every single service that's been built to Medicare or Medicaid or a federal program could potentially be a false claim. And so that's that's how sometimes these things happen. And you're right, pile on. So when you're negotiating with the government on issues, oh, and you have it, it's like the optics of it, right? So it's like, is this a compliant organization? Oh, yeah, maybe it's not a big deal. We don't have a big dollar amount, but it's like one more thing they're doing wrong. So that's where we see it come up. Absolutely. So another question. Mm-hmm. If you had to pick the top three um, most common things that happen in radiology practices that either should not happen or should you should be extremely cautious about. I know we've talked a little bit about this with what you're spending on referring physicians, and sometimes that happens through the marketing department. But what are some other things, maybe from the perspective of the radiologist or from the perspective of the like senior operational leadership or ownership of these practices? So I think one thing that seems to come up a lot, and there's usually a debate about whose cost it is, it happens with like exclusive contracts. So the radiology group has an exclusive contract to provide, let's say, reads um, for the hospitals and patient and patients and, and maybe outpatient um, services. But there's an exclusive contract in place and maybe a hospital will come to the radiology group. And they try to get them to take on a cost that maybe the radiology group shouldn't be taking on. And so in that scenario, and this is a kickback issue, by the way, and I'll explain why in a second. But um, so if it's really something that the hospital hospital should bear, and the hospitals are all looking right to save money and um, they have business considerations. So they're looking for ways to say, hey, maybe we shouldn't be paying for this dedicated 
internet line. Um, and it's always facts and circumstances. But so, for example, we had a case where you have a radiology group that there's a dedicated line to their bunker and it's very expensive. It costs about $40,000 a year um, for this dedicated line, but the line is only used for purposes of this contract. And this line is the only way that the radiology group can access the hospital's records. Um, and so the hospital is always paid for that cost. And so now the hospital has come to the radiology group and said, hey, you know what, we you, you we need you to cover that cost. If we don't, you know, we're going to have a regulatory issue. And the problem there is you have to really decide whose cost is it really? Is it really the hospital's cost or is it the radiologist's cost? And in many scenarios you look at, it's really the hospital's cost and they're trying to shift those costs to the radiology group, which can create a kickback issue. Why, why does that create a kickback issue? It's because the the radiology group is dependent upon the hospital's referrals. And so they need they want that business. And so now you're, and maybe it's a discounted price or there's something that the radiology group was expected to do that is outside of the normal and ordinary course to get that business that creates that creates significant kickback issues. And that can be in terms of maybe items or services. It could be employees, like who's covering the cost of a certain employee? Is this employee really working on behalf of the hospital or are they working on behalf of the radiology group? So those are, I think, areas where I've seen lately um, a lot of fights and a lot of the fights began because it starts with the business, like the business folks, the hospital that are trying to, to kind of cut costs. And so they think, let's just shift them to the radiologist. And leases, leases are another thing, you know, when you're leasing to a referral source, you got to be careful that the lease really reflects fair market value, what's commercially reasonable, um, you know, that that if the space changes over time, that the lease reflects that to make sure the parties are, what, what they're leasing really reflects what's on the lease agreement. You see that happen a lot. Um, so that's I've been saying. Are there situations where radiology groups may have office space within the radiology department? Is that yeah. something that should be considered fair market value and paid for by the radiology group, or it can, it's part of the arrangement? So it depends. So it can be part of the arrangement, but let's say that that radiology group is using those offices for other business and other services that are not related to that contract. So there's all kinds. So it really gets down to. I have to say, like, everything always gets down to the weeds, right? Like, what actually are the facts and circumstances of that um, scenario? There may be perfectly legitimate arrangements where you're not paying for that space, but other times it's, it would be appropriate to pay for that space, depending upon what it's used for. So we see that, too. Yeah. Definitely. And I think another issue that um, I think at the beginning, well, we just jumped into Stark, I think it's something important to keep in mind, too, because... Radiologists are unique in a way that they're treated a little bit differently under the Stark Law. We've talked about this a lot before where, you know, most of the time diagnostic radiologists are not considered referring physicians under the law, but the services that they bill are considered designated health services for Stark purposes. So Stark still applies, but a lot of times what we're looking at is how does the radiology group operate and what kind of financial relationships does the radiology group have with referring physicians? So that's one angle. But the other issue that comes up sometimes is if you have interventionalists, interventionalists are really kind of like treating providers. And so oftentimes those special pet farmers and star don't apply to interventionalists. So it doesn't mean you can't do relationships, but you almost treat the interventionalists like you would a 
typical referring physician. So I'm going to be a surgeon or other referring source, referral source physician when you're looking at structuring arrangements. This is just something to keep an eye out for. I always say, don't get all wrapped up in kind of um, getting uh, kind of confused about the issues. Just know that Stark is going to apply and it may apply differently, um, but you still are going to have to worry about meeting exceptions under both scenarios. Let's talk a little bit more about that, about interventional um, providers, because that, that will be part of our audience here. Okay. And um, a lot of the interventional radiologists that I speak with fairly often, maybe they're new and, and they're just, mm-hmm. again, maybe they were in a practice where compliance issues and, and other regulatory or legal things were just handled by the institution or the group at large. And their job was to come in and do their cases and leave. So now maybe they're in a in a, their own business and they have an OBL and suddenly all of this matters every single day and they're the ones who have to maintain the compliance. Yeah. What advice? I know the first advice is consult your own attorney with yes. but what um what advice would you give maybe in simple terms to some of these new or not new interventional radiologists, but interventional radiologists who have a new practice that they own? So what I would say is this, um, I think one of the big right, big issues to look out for is that if you're offered some kind of investment with um, a referral source or with a with an other type of entity, you have to be careful, ownership and joint ventures. So sometimes radiologists, diagnostic radiologists can do different type of joint ventures because they're treated different under startup, but interventional or interventionalists will be treated like referring physicians. So oftentimes you can't do certain radiology joint ventures. So ownership with other people or entities, you have to be very careful about those structures. That's one, one issue I'd be careful about. The other is just in, in general, just think of the practice as a referring physician practice. So any entity which with you're doing business, whether it's with the hospital or another referral source, potentially, anytime you have a financial relationship, you just need to make sure that financial relationship is structured appropriately. And that goes back to whether it's a lease, whether it's a, an employment arrangement, um, that you are paying fair market value, everything's commercially reasonable. Uh, and when I say, some people say, well, what's the difference between fair market value and commercial reasonableness? And there's like experts out there that spend all their days doing it, but I, I like to break it down like this. You, If you have a lease um, of space and it's $50 a square foot, just making up this number, right? Um, but you don't need the entire space. So $50 a square foot is fair market value. And let's say we enter into a lease, but really I don't need the entire space, but I decide that well, we're going to include an extra, you know, a thousand square feet in the lease because we want to, you know, get more rent. So that might be fair market value for the square footage you're paying for, but it's not commercially reasonable because why would you lease more space than you need? And is it tied to the referral relationship? So understood. Yeah. So that's, yeah. Or if you, maybe you're dealing with consultants and you only really need one referring, maybe you want to, maybe you want to contract with a referring physician for some kind of consultant role. Um, and you decide, well, why don't we, why don't we just enter the same agreement with like a, a whole host of referring physicians? Cause then they're going to be happy with us and they're more likely to refer. Well, we didn't really need a consultant with a consultant agreement with all these different referring physicians. Maybe one was appropriate, but 10 isn't. 
So that's something that maybe you're paying for market value, but it's not commercially reasonable and I'll get you into trouble. That I makes could sense. just say this to anyone going into in healthcare and starting their own practice. Just be aware of this. And I say this, you can't pay for referrals and you can't accept money for referrals. So what about it looks like? Right, that's it. So it doesn't matter if a lease arrangement, a different joint venture, if it's the new service line, if it's, you know, some kind of arrangement with a referral source, whatever it is, you can't pay for referrals or accept money for referrals. So I think that if you remember that, that in the back of your mind, every time you're looking at an arrangement and just say, hey, maybe this needs to be looked at from a compliance perspective, from a legal perspective, I think that should be the first question you look at or understand the first information you understand. If you think that's what's happening, that's something that should trigger you to like have it looked at by legal or compliance. That's a good rule. And it's yeah. it's an easy one to, to really think about. It's a very complex situation, but if you can break it down to that very easy term then absolutely it, it will trigger those. The, right, the because it's these arrangements. All these arrangements, that's what it usually breaks down to. Well, why are you paying more for the leases? Because the referrals. Why, you know, it's always something, but it, it's designed to look like it's structured correctly. Um, and, and the other thing is too, just because something's written in paper, this, a lease arrangement, or maybe it's an employment agreement, it may all look pretty on paper and it might meet the exception, But the, if but if that's not what the arrangement is, so that's what happens sometimes too. You, the parties say, oh, well, let's just enter into this lease arrangement. But the, the document doesn't reflect the actual arrangement. Right. So that's going to be a problem. See when that can go to intent. Like, what are you trying to hide? What are you trying to do? And by the way, many providers are really, really good providers. Um, and so I, I don't mean to sound jaded that like you have all these providers out there doing these things like intentionally. But what happens is that there's so many different regulations um, and it's and they're overwhelming and it's really easy to potentially not comply. And sometimes it's strict liability, sometimes intent doesn't matter. And sometimes it's the government just targeting certain industries, certain dollar, you know, certain services. And so you just have to be careful. So just stay safe and be good. <laughs> well, you should have a robust compliance program in place. I know that everyone hates that. We're like, oh, what does that really mean? But a true compliance program where you've really identified your areas. So I always say for radiology practices, what are your areas? Well, one of them is marketing you brought up, right? Anytime you have marketing, those areas need to be referral sources, um, billing, right? The actual medical necessity issues. Those are all issues that need to be addressed. Make sure that you have a good, um, you know, compliance hotline and anonymous place because you want your people that raise issues to raise them internally and not to outside, not to the government, not right. to yes. the outside. You want to make it a safe space for them to bring up the issues and you want to make sure that you look at those issues. There may or may not be an issue that you need to address, uh, but you need to handle it correctly and make sure that people understand that they're welcome to identify issues um, and they're not going to, you know, have any retaliation because um, that's what leads to a lot of a lot of the Stark and kickback cases really emanate from somebody from within that's upset. They raised issues. Sometimes the issues that they raise aren't real compliance issues, but it's the way that it's handled makes somebody feel like somebody's trying to hide something and feel like they've been retaliated against that creates a whole list of issues for clients. Yeah. And hopefully yeah. with good leadership, those employees will feel safe to say, yes, and have a question about why or how we do this. Mm -hmm. So ideally, yes, let's hope that. <laughs> That most of our practices out there um, have that sort of leadership where it really is a team and, and you can discuss these things together. Um, tell me just a little bit about what is the 
difference you mentioned a little bit about it the difference in stark and anti-kickback and you said that stark is civil and anti-kickback can be criminal yeah but in in lay terms for for those people who are out there listening to us right now what's the difference and and what where do you cross the line between civil and criminal so so the stock law is very technical in nature, and it goes back to that first kind of prohibition where I talked about you have to have that physician referral of a Medicare designated yeah. health services to an entity without meeting an exception. And so you couldn't, you know, think you're doing everything right, but let's just say you have a simple lease agreement and you forgot to get it signed. Well, technically you have a stark issue. Kickback okay. is going to look at more than that. Kickback is going to look at the intents of the parties, and it's broader in nature. So kickback applies to all, like almost anyone in healthcare. If you're dealing with federal funds, so not just Medicare, it's going to deal with any federal healthcare program. It's kickback. It's really looking at whether you're paying for referrals or receiving money for referrals, and so and it's going to go to the intents of the parties. Um, but I always say this, um, when you're dealing in radiology, you're going to have to deal with both and you want to first look at your Stark issues to make sure that you, because if you technically comply with Stark, usually you're probably okay from a kickback perspective, right? But if you have a Stark issue, you're also going to have a kickback issue, but you have, you know, you're going to have a problem on both ends. So you're going to have to pay a lot of money and go to jail. Hey, yeah. <laughs> you know what? The jail part is something that has got to be pretty egregious, like, you know, because you know, when they go after someone criminally, there's usually something kind of there, there. There's something real there that, that you have like damning right. emails, right? You have the parties know what they're doing is wrong and they're talking about it and they're looking at a way to structure something to hide it um, versus, you know, a typical, even they can go after you for administrative, um, it, they can go after civilly and administratively, even under the kickback statute if they think. Yeah, it's probably some like, you know, willful ignorance. You're just kind of head in the sand or the parties didn't really realize what they were doing, but you still potentially could have kickback ex exposure. But I just say this, anyone in healthcare, any probably transaction you enter into, any referral source relationship, kickback is going to apply. Um, but you also have to remember something that um, I think folks tend to not worry about, but you should also worry about is like the other payers and state laws. So you have the federal Stark law, but most states have some kind of mini Stark law and they're very different. Sometimes they look a lot like the federal Stark law, but they'll apply to, maybe they apply to all sorts of payment. So, um, and sometimes they only apply to the Medicaid program. Sometimes they apply to like a more narrow set of services. Um, so you hear a state that you can um, think of that is one that varies quite a bit from, from state to federal? Yeah, so I'll say this. So Michigan, we're one of the states that I practice in, we have an interesting kind of mini start law. And our start law, it's similar in an extent to the federal start law. It takes the federal start law and says, hey, we're going to apply this in the state, but we apply it to all sorts of payments, so even cash. So, and it's all your blue crosses, all the, you know, commercial insurances. It applies to everything. So in some states, you can carve out your payers. And so you might have an arrangement and just carve out and not have a Stark issue, um, but you can't do that in Michigan. But it's also a, license, a licensure law in Michigan. So what it does is it goes after the physician's licenses if you have a problem. So right. they could get their license revoked, which is very, that's very different than, the, I mean, you could have consequences like that at a federal level exclusion and things like that. But, um, and then there are states that have, um, 
a stark law that maybe only applies to a narrow set of services like nursing home services. It might not cover radiology. Uh, a lot of states do cover radiology. Most states have some type of chicken bass, mini star glossy. Oh, I always say, make sure you always check your state law because I think a lot of parties are so afraid of Medicare, but you, you need to worry about your state laws too. And also the other payers, a lot of times have robust kind of investigative units and they'll go after you. Like if it's for purposes of um, it may just be, you know, an uh, audit or some kind of other investigation where they're taking back monies, which still is very important <laughs> to providers. It could be sure. very damaging um, to yeah. doing business. And yeah, I think yeah. maybe um, one of the things that, you know, the idea of losing a license that I was joking about going to jail, really, but losing a license for most physicians, I'm sure would be scarier than actual. Yeah. Jail. And also is, you know, in some of these situations I've seen where, you know, the fines that result in this are phenomenal. Just yeah. fines, but also then the the um, possibility of losing your contracts or losing your relationship yes. with CMS so that you no longer can bill and then your business can be crippled. Yeah. So that we always call that kind of the collateral effects. So there's all kinds of things that can happen. And so when we talk about earlier, really a lot of the enforcement comes from False Claims Act. Well, some of the other things that can happen, you're right, there's tremendous civil penalties. So from like a civil false claims act, you can have up to, it's close to 24,000. It's like 23,300 something maximum penalty per claim. So per claim. So let's say you had a, 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 a large referral source relationship that didn't meet an exception. Well, that is every single order that he, you know, uh, service that he sent or she sent over and claim that was submitted to Medicare is the, could be a false claim. And that's 24000 per claim plus then three times the damaged amount. So if each claim ended up being be several million dollars and three times that, oh, then yeah. you have attorney's fees. But then you also have what you're talking about, exclusion. You have potential exclusion. Oftentimes, it's um, it's not mandatory; it's permissive. But CMS can take away, yeah, can exclude you from the program, can bar you for so many for so many years. But then also, what happens is like that collateral effect, where does it become a licensing case? Is it coordination with the state for the state for the licensing? If it's a bad enough, you know, if it's it has criminal issues in nature, then oftentimes then there's coordination with the state licensing boards, and then as you know with all the other payers once they when you fill out those credentialing forms and you have to tell them yes sometimes there's questions that are asked about any um you know cases or any prior issues then you and you have to look very carefully of how those questions are asked and if you have to disclose that that could lead to you know being departicipated um from other payers and then also medical staff privileges so there's like a whole litany of issues that can hide so picked off of staffs, picked out of, yeah. So a lot of things can happen. Um, it doesn't happen to everyone, and um, but, but, but there are a lot of consequences. It's not just always paying back a fine or kind of making it go away with some kind of- paying the difference between 489 and $550. No. Asking no. a physician to give that back pales in comparison <laughs> of having yes. to deal with all of these very significant issues that can- yeah, and if, and if you just look at the paper, right, every day, your local paper or go onto the OIG website, you see like enforcement actually happening everywhere all the time, right? Mm -hmm. It isn't 
And we say also, I always say this too, it's like the Medicare contractors out there. So you have the regular man audits that are just the contractors. Yeah. But then they have like safeguard contractors, which are, they're really looking at more. They're looking at potential fraud. And do they then coordinate with the DOJ or, or another agency? Or are they just looking to get major payback? So I mean, there's just so many things that can happen to providers. So much. And you know, what, what, I'm sitting here thinking as we talk, and, and I think about this every single time I've ever had a conversation with you, is this scares the you-know-what out of me, and it should scare every single radiology provider that's in our industry enough to pay attention to the law, consult your own attorney, and just understand that it should be scary. And that's yeah. why I'm so grateful that that you're willing to do this and share your expertise and that you have been all these years in in the various organizations. I, I you know, once a year is fantastic. Sometimes I feel like I need to hear it once every six months even. So I'm glad yeah. you're doing this in a way that people can go back and even re-listen to it and just remind themselves it is scary. The consequences can be very scary, but most of us, most practices are doing things the right way, and that is fantastic. But even for those who believe they're doing everything exactly by the book, to just be aware of all the compliance related to Stark and anti-kickback. Yeah, and I see this too. It's like I, my speech is very different, and I, my my uh, practice is very different when someone comes to me and they've identified a problem versus upfront how we deal with stuff on the front end when we're looking at an arrangement. You're going to be more conservative on the front end, right? And making sure that you're crossing your T's out of your eyes. Um, but then when someone comes to us and their the, uh, issue has been identified, that's a little different because you're looking to see there were, but a lot of times there's defenses. Um, and so I don't mean to be also doom and gloom. I do think you have to have a healthy amount of your right to be a little scared because there are all these laws out there and there's like really, really draconian consequences. But also be aware that you, to bring it up and to have it looked at is really important. Are there defenses? Maybe not. Maybe there's ways that we can handle it by doing some paybacks um, and doing kind of getting out front. And it may sound like a lot of money now, but it's going to save you a lot of money in the future. Um, maybe it's that we discovered that we really don't have an issue, but it but we've learned other things in the investigation. Internal investigations oftentimes I always say my clients will come to me about one issue. They think there's an issue that's been raised and it, that's really not the issue, but we identify another issue that we can correct. Um, and that's what good compliance is about is identifying issues and then correcting them moving forward. Um, and that's also what's looked at by investigators also. It's like, do they have compliance in place? Are they trying to do the right thing? Those are all things that are factored in when you're dealing with the government. So is, you want to just such a thing. And I'm sure there is, but, um, but I'm asking the expert, um, not my, I'm not trusting my own opinion, but do you, maybe you in your own business or just healthcare attorneys on a broader scale, do you do compliance audits? Could a, pra could a practice call you and say, hey, I listen to this podcast and I'm a little bit nervous. I think I'm doing everything right. But I just want to know for sure. Is that a service that's offered? It is a service that's offered, and what's um, great about doing it, like you can have it under privilege. So you put it under the attorney-client privilege, and right. you can maybe identify certain areas you want to look at, whether it's billing issues and you bring in a billing expert. You might need someone to look at medical necessity. Maybe it's coding. You want a coder to help review it because it could be a, just a strict billing issue, or maybe it is a relationship issue. And we say, hey, you know what? We don't love how this is done. Maybe these leases could be cleaned up. 
um, there's ways that we can defend it, but we're going to come up with maybe new templates to work with when you're dealing with certain financial relationships. Yeah, the billing and the medical necessity issues, then you can have that all looked at under um, the privilege um, so that that is the protected information and can give you a lot of valuable information. There'd be recommendations on that. And so uh, the client then would, you know, have recommendations and the client, you know, we'd hope that they follow the recommendations, but that's a business decision that they need to, you know, address. Right. Consider. I would imagine that that would be um, well-spent money. Yes. Yes. To make sure that you do that. Mm-hmm. Um, another question. I know that I we've been talking for an hour. I could talk to you even longer and would be happy to sit here all evening. But uh, what what is maybe the weirdest or wildest stark violation that you've encountered? One that would just really make you scratch your head and say, why did they do that? Or how did they do that? Or just what was that? Like the, you know, uh, money in envelope or money left under the um, one case, the money left um, by a recruiter in the desk of a physician. It's oh, wow. like, what are you yeah. doing? And give it back. <laughs> give it back. Yeah. So, um, but I think the, most of the cases that we deal with, it just seems to be like little technical issues that nobody thought like, why would Stark apply to like a marketing program? Well, you know, why does it apply to pens? Like we gave some pens. And again, I don't mean to make such a big deal about that, uh, but but the, the, that's usually what surprises people of like from a compliance perspective that why are we even talking about this law? Right, right. Yeah. And the fact that tiny things like a pen could turn yeah. in, or yeah. what could be the trigger to uncover mm-hmm. not the so tiny. Yeah. So billing issues are, yeah. Totally. Yeah. So any last thoughts or any last nuggets of advice for our listeners before um, before we have to close this and shut the door on this um, edition yeah. of your expertise? I think this, if there's marketers in the group or operations and business folks, we always say to be careful about um, what you consider as part of your marketing branch versus like other business operations. And I always say that marketing should be your typical, what you think of marketing services and anything about like leasing arrangements with referring physicians, even though some people house that in their marketing, that really shouldn't be part of marketing. That should be more like business operations and the marketer shouldn't be in charge of that. Cause what does that look like? It looks like your marketers out there trying to provide something to the referral source to keep those referrals coming. That is yeah. a good point, even if it has nothing to do with it. So we're like, the hats are, the marketing yeah. hats are very separate from the business strategic folks. That's a good point. That's a really good point. I think that, especially maybe in some of the smaller practices who we do wear a lot of hats. Yes. So just make sure those two hats don't sit on the same head. Exactly. Office managers oftentimes are asked to do a lot of different things, do the lease arrangement, do this, that. And yeah, you have to be careful. What hat are you wearing? Um, making sure that, and be careful about emails. I see this another sort of thing as be careful why emails, because emails are used oftentimes against people and you're looking back at it like, oh, I'm just said it that way. And so you can see how somebody could read it in a different way. Um, so be careful about how things are written. And it also, if you, somebody discovers an issue, always be careful about how you say it. I, I can't tell you how many times the email's like, we're committing fraud. And fraud is a very specific <laughs> term. And sometimes you're just making you've identified a potential mistake maybe it's not so maybe that email should say i'd like to chat with you are you available at four right yeah there's an issue i'd like to talk about but putting down that we're committing fraud that happens all the time 
where a high level employees will say that and say, no, it's actually not, <laughs> don't say that. So be careful about and then they how you're saying all like emails and they come in court with this whole stack of emails where you yes. discuss. Yeah. Scary. Very scary things. Yeah. Um, okay. So thank you so, so, so much for this. I, again, I think I love you. I've loved you since the day I met you. And I think that we could talk about this forever. I'm looking forward to our next opportunity to maybe have a conference together so that we can, um, we can chat. I'd be happy to come back and talk about any other issue um, that you need. And yeah, so um, yeah, look forward to seeing you again. We always have a fun time. Adrian, but (laughs) I miss you too. For our listeners, thank you for being here. Thank you for joining us on this podcast episode, Practice Perspectives, Keen Insights. Don't you like my name? I love it. It's (laughs) awesome. It's very work. It absolutely works. Um, Just thank you all. Thank you for being here. Thank you for trusting us with your time. And Adrian, you're you're a gem and your brilliance is just always appreciated. So thank you. Thank you um, so much. Practice Perspectives Keen Insights is brought to you by Abidox, a platform of workflow solutions to optimize radiology practice operations. Thank you all for being here, and we will see you next time. Thank you. Bye. Bye. The Practice Perspectives Keen Insights podcast is brought to you by Abidox, a platform of workflow solutions built to optimize radiology practice operations.